0: Uh, so let's pray, and we'll get into our text. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, giving it to us, Lord, as uh, we would be lost if, we just, um, if uh, we just relied on our own internal whims. And so, Lord, thank you that there's something outside of us that shows us what you're like, what we're like, and how our world works. Oh, Lord, uh, use uh, these words. Use this time. Uh, bless it by the power of your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, we got any Michael Scott fans in the room? Michael Scott, uh, big Michael Scott guy here. Uh, if you don't know, uh, maybe if you've been living under a rock uh, the last 15 years or so, uh, he, he's in the office. He's a lead character in the office. It's Steve Carell, you know, and there's two things, if, you ever, if you've ever watched it, you know, there's two things that are true of him. Uh, one is that he's, he's so endearing. He's always happy. That's one thing that's true. The other thing that's true about Michael Scott is that he lacks every social skill imaginable. I mean, he has no clear character strengths, no, no accomplishments. He, he can't make friends. Every thought, every feeling, every behavior he has produces, that he produces is in the service of attaining the one thing he's doomed to not have. And it's the attention and admiration of other people. And you would think this would uh, produce a, a miserable existence for Michael Scott, but it doesn't. He has no idea that if he asked Stanley or Pam or Jim to give him any kind of feedback about his management style or his personal life, he has no idea that it would all be negative if he only asked. He has no idea. But how does he not know? Was well, because the, the the writers are are making him into a caricature of someone who's only interested in themselves, It's someone who admires themselves above all others. Now that there's nothing wrong with having some self-interest, it, it can be a healthy thing. It can be healthy when we live in, in, in when we live humbly yet confidently when we're anchored by an experience of being deeply loved at a core level. I mean, just. Think of a child. Think of a child who boldly performs a cartwheel for a parent and then receives delight from that parent. See, when when we're loved, we we develop this this healthy and holy confidence. Yet, as many of us know all too well, there's also such thing as toxic self-interest. And you know it's turned toxic when self-interested persons have little to no capacity to see the damage that's left in their wake. They're constantly defending their ego. They're always explaining what's gone wrong in their lives with some external influence. See, at the bottom of who we are as human beings is that we have this desire to matter. And Michael Scott, he longs to be noticed. He longs to matter. And the reason that this show has become this this, this generational cultural centerpiece is in part because it's connected to this human element that we all have that we long to matter. We know we all have something in us. We have some Michael Scott that runs through us. The difference is that most of us, we've learned to hide it better than he has. But sometimes this toxic self-interest leaks out, doesn't it? What do we do? How do we we deal with this toxic self-interest? Well, James tells us in the first 12 verses of chapter 4. Let's read it together. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of this law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The word of the Lord. I want to break down this passage into three parts. The the, the first four verses are the first part, and it's really the diagnosis of this self-centeredness, this toxic self-centeredness. Then verses 5 and 6 are the healing for our self-centeredness. And then verses 7 to 12 are the results of being healed. So let's look at the diagnosis, what it looks like to be a self-centered person. Well, you see in those first three verses that there's an internal component to being self-interested and there's an external component to being self-interested. You see the internal with words like in verse 1, you see passions. Verse 2, you see desire and then covet. Verse 3, you see passions again. And all of these are internal and all these are also morally neutral words. The word translated, for instance, covet, it sounds negative, but it's not in a moral sense. It also could be translated as zealous. So there you have it, you have passion, desire, and zeal. Again, none of them are bad words according to the Bible. You won't find these words shamed in the Bible. You'll find that it's not just permissible to be passionate. It's not just permissible to be desirous and zealous, but you'll find that to be passionate, desirous, and zealous is demanded by God. He wants us to enjoy all that He's made, and He wants us to enjoy nature. He wants us to enjoy our bodies through exercise. He wants us to enjoy friendship and food. He wants us to enjoy a ball game. He wants us to enjoy the the, the joys of family and a good book and a concert and an art gallery. All these things God wants us to enjoy to be desirous, to be zealous, to be passionate about these things. So in some ways, Christians ought to be the biggest pleasure seekers in the universe because they know that behind all these good things in creation, all these things find their origin in God. So how do you know if your desires, if your passions, if your zeal has become selfish, has become toxic, Well, you find it the same way James does. I mean, look at these external factors that these internal dynamics have produced. You see it? Look at verse 1. Quarrels and fights. That's how you know. Again, verse 1, war within you. War within you aren't these competing competing desires within one's soul. What he's talking about war within you is war within y'all, the church, that there's war breaking out in church, that there's fractured relationships within the church. Then in verse 2, he says murder. It's hard to know exactly what James means, but it likely doesn't mean the taking of one's life, that there's murder happening within the walls of the church. But he's probably talking about murder the same way that Jesus did in Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapter 5. That what he's really talking about is speaking hatefully to and about one another. Murder. Then you, in verse 3, you have another external consequence. You see that uh, that, that, that there are unanswered prayers because of these selfish desires. So that's how you know. That's how you know your passions, your desire, and your zeal has turned sour is by these external markers. So if your, is, if your life is filled with broken relationships, if your life is filled with unanswered prayer, then you can know that there's some toxic selfishness taking place. But verse 4 says, is there something else going on? Verse 4 says that there's there's an alliance, that there's this central affiliation, there's this friendship that selfish people have, and it's with the world. You see that in verse 4? And what he's saying is that the most formative relationships for selfish people is not with God, but it's with the world. And when he talks about the world, he doesn't mean the earth, he doesn't mean the created order, he doesn't mean people who live in the world, what he means is is, is the system system that's been, the system of humanity that's organized without God in mind. And that world, what it does is its values, the world's values throw gash on our selfish fires that are ablaze in our hearts. See, some of the most prevalent and also most insidious values of the world, they prey on our hearts, like self-promotion. That's something we find as a value in the world. And all it does is it wants to create an image for oneself. Another one is materialism, that we base our happiness on bank accounts and homes and clothes and cars. We have experienceism, where we center our lives around experiences like eating at fine restaurants and going to sporting events and vacation and ski trips and foreign tours. We have achievementism as being a success that's determined by superior talents and abilities mixed with hard work. So all these values that are placed in the world that then go upon our selfish hearts, set them afire. And it forces us to ask some questions, doesn't it? Are we, are we better friends with the world today than we were a year ago? Well, where do we derive our primary pleasure, the world or God. Are we God's adversary or are we his friend? These are hard questions, hard questions for me this week. And if the answers to those questions cause you pain, I've got good news. Here's the good news. You're an adulteress. You might say, well, gosh, Martha that doesn't sound like good news to me. I mean, I want to be an adulteress. But here's what being an adulteress means. See, if you were just sleeping around as a single person, that's sexual immorality. But if you're sleeping around while married, you're an adulteress. So when James calls the church an adulteress, he's saying, you're married. Someone cares about you. And his name's Jesus. I mean, the church is called Christ's bride throughout the New Testament. You see it in 2 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians 5, Revelation 19 and 21. You see, God is the bridegroom of Israel who is the bride. In Isaiah 57, in Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 23, and then in the passage that we read earlier, Hosea 2, brought me to tears. And all of these Old Testament usages that we find that I just listed out, if you were to go back and read them like the one that we read today, they're all about Israel running off with pagan deities of neighboring nation states. They're being worldly. And when they did, they, when they went off and they ran after these pagan deities, they, they, weren't, setting, they, they weren't setting out to, to say like, you know what, I, I'm not going to be a God worshiper anymore, the God of Israel. I'm going a, 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 to just worship pagan deities. No, no, no. What they were doing is that they said, we want to worship the Lord and the pagan deities. See, just as no husband or wife tolerates their spouse taking on an additional lover, the Lord will not tolerate our adulterous ways. See, God tolerates no rival. That's why verse 5 says in our text today, James 4, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Jealousy. See, this this jealousy, when it's properly understood, it's an ingredient of all true love. Because what jealousy is trying to do is it's trying to protect and maintain the exclusivity of the marital relationship. So when we two time on Jesus, he gives us, he loves us enough to bring us back, to force a divorce. That's why James in verse 6 says, he gives us more grace. We don't deserve that. See, if I were God, and I'm really glad I'm not, I, I would have given up on me a long time ago. But the jealous love of God continues to rescue me from my alliance with the world. See, I I know it's hard to believe, but God is tirelessly on our side. He's tirelessly on our side, regardless of our commitment to Him. He never fails to meet every need we have with His grace. Whatever you might forfeit, you cannot forfeit your salvation because he's always giving you more grace. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generation, his generosity knows no limit. I mean l- listen to this poem. This poem is by a woman named Annie Johnson Flint. Here's what she writes. It highlights this truth about more grace. She writes this, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more grace when the labors increase. To added affliction, He addeth His mercy. To multiplied trials, His multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. So, brother and sister, adulteress, fellow adulteress, this grace is to win your heart over. It's the elixir to all your guilt and all your shame. It's also the elixir that unlocks a new lifestyle. It also allows you to move away from the disobedience of selfishness and into the obedience of humility. The God who says, here is my grace to receive, says in the very same breath, here are my commands to obey. So he gives us a bunch. Do you see them all in verses 7 to 11? There's 11 of them. There's 11 imperatives in five verses. And they either have something to do about our relationship with God, walking in humility with him, or in our relationship with one another. Most of them are about our relationship with God. The first one he lists in verse seven is about submitting to him. I don't know about you, but when I see the word submitting, it sounds very passive to me, but it's not. See, submitting to God is about actively arranging your whole life under God's direction. It's constantly not trusting your own instincts and it's asking God to search your heart and expose your motives. Submitting to God means it's, you're constantly hearing His Word and you're seeking ways to put it into practice. Submitting to God means that, 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 what, what, that you submit to Him even when you don't get the feel-goods. See, here's what's true. See, none of us come to Christ unbowed. Because we come to Christ bowed, we continue to return to that posture of submission because he loves us. He loves us with jealousy, so we submit to him. The second way of humility with God is about resisting the devil and drawing near to him. Now again, this isn't Unbelievers, he's not. He's not telling unbelievers, you know, you should resist God and draw near to Him. He's talking to believers. He's talking to people who know what it's like to live in God's house. I mean, think about the prodigal son. When the prodigal son is far off, does does the father go after him with the pig when he's eating pig stew? No. But what the what the son is working with here are a whole bunch of memories. He's got a whole bunch of memories of what it's like to live in the house with his dad. And that's what spurs him to run home. And his father meets him halfway down the road. He can't even get to the front porch. His dad's not waiting inside for him to knock on the front door. His dad's waiting on the front porch for him. And so when we draw near to God, that's what we know we're going to find. It's a God who will meet us with open arms and won't rub our noses in our adulterous ways. And perhaps he's done this for you this morning. These former memories of what it's like to live in God's house, they make you want to resist the evil one. They make you want to draw near to him. And maybe for the first time in a long time, you're restoring fellowship with God here in worship this morning. That's part of humility is resisting the devil and drawing near to God. Another part is repentance. You see it there with the whole list. He says, be wretched, mourn, and weep. Three imperatives. This sounds a little different than Paul. You know, Philippians chapter four, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. We all know that verse. But how do you square Paul there in Philippians four with this verse here in James four? I mean, James is telling us to cry. Paul's telling us to have a good time. Well, not exactly. See, the laughter and joy that James is talking about here in verse 10, it's a superficial kind of joy. It's the kind of joy that comes from indulging in our selfish desire. But real joy, real joy only comes after we've mourned. It only comes after we've wept. We've wept over our sin. See, we should weep. We should weep when we see that our sin crucified the sinless Christ. We should weep when we see how our sin has affected God's people. And that's a godly sorrow. It's a sorrow that produces tears of repentance. That's part of what it means to humble ourselves before the Lord. And then the last one is really it's, it's, it's real stark. He just says, humble yourself. Now, throughout other, time, other places in Scripture, they, it says that God humbles us. But right here, James tells us to humble ourselves. And it is true that if you don't humble yourself, God's going to do it to you eventually. I mean, he'll use some person to lovingly confront you. He'll use your circumstances to bring you to your knees. He will humble you that way. But why wait? Why wait for God to do that? I mean, look what happens in verse 10. If you humble yourselves, then you get exalted. Isn't that what you really want? So instead of exalting yourself and waiting on God to humble you, why don't you humble yourself and let God exalt you? See, if you meet a Christian who's not selfish, if you you meet a Christian who's yielded to the jealous love of God, here's what you'll find. You'll find someone like this. You'll find someone who submits to God. You'll find someone who resists the devil. You'll find someone who draws near to God. You'll find someone who lives a life of repentance, and you'll find someone who pursues humility. And you'll also find someone, according to verse 11, who doesn't slander. I mean, think of all the things he could have talked about how to relate to one another. And of course, James, based on what we know about him, is going to talk about how we use our speech. So he says, do not speak evil against one another, verse 11. I mean, you got to know that James is not prohibiting the humble evaluation of others' character. I mean, this is necessary, even if it comes off a little judgy on occasion. Because look what James does here. He's getting in the, in, in the, in the church's face again and again about their sin, but he does so while calling them his brothers and his sisters. So what James is prohibiting here is the unnecessarily spreading of negative evaluations of other people. See, the church, our church, it ought to be a place where our reputations aren't drained. It ought to be a place where they're not weakened through gossip. But this is often what we find in Christian communities of all kinds. It's certainly what we find in all other kinds of communities. We talk behind one another's back and then we justify it and say, well, we're just telling the truth. We talk behind other people's back and we say, well, I've already said this to their face or I would say it to their face. But the church ought not to be that kind of place. It ought to be the kind of place where you don't sit around and wonder, I wonder what all these people are saying behind my back negatively. We ought to be like, man, man, I wonder all the good things people are saying about me. All the ways that they're noticing God's work in my life, how they're noticing the gifts that, they, that I've been given, how they're delighting in me. I mean, just think about this. Think about all the people who are in, your. if you're in a neighbor group or a small group, I hope you're talking about how much you're enjoying the people in your small group or in your neighbor group to people who aren't in your neighbor group or your small group. Because what you're doing is you're really just expressing your love for him for them behind their back. It's like reverse slander. And what were if we were a church of reverse slander? We're not thinking about ourselves all the time. See, the mark of a humble person is someone who's, in, who's instinctively aware of those around them because they're not always thinking about themselves. See, zoom out just a minute on this text as a whole, these 12 verses when I think about how I use my words and my time and my money and my thoughts, it's humiliating. I find them to be profoundly selfish. In fact, it really makes me see why I love Michael Scott so much. Because I'm so much like him. And I got a touch more self-awareness, I think, than Michael Scott, but maybe not much. It's really hard for me to see that God still loves me in Christ. That he's come after me, his adulterous bride, that that he's died and he's risen again on my behalf. That's really humbling. It makes me want to orient my life around him instead of around me. It makes me want to praise others behind their back instead of speak evil behind their backs. So you pray for me as your pastor. (laughs) Will you pray that I be less selfish? Because that's what I'm praying for you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you make us less selfish? Of all the ways we could stick out from the world, it might be our could be a sexual ethic. It could be the way we think about race and poverty. It could be the way that we think about our money. But what if we? What if you made us just a, a, people that were countercultural because, we just weren't selfish. Oh Lord, would you make us these kind of people? We know it's going to take a long time. We know it's going to be really painful. But Lord, I pray that we would be able to identify when we're in quarrels. Lord, when we see that the reason you're not answering our prayers is because we're just asking for things that glorify ourselves. And Lord, I pray you would align our hearts with your agenda, Lord, that you would uh, jealously rescue us uh, from our love for the world and its values. We pray these things in your name. Amen.